All right, Ephesians 6.4. Um, this will kind of come back around at the end, uh, but I want to read it uh, because there's a, a word given there. Uh, it's in, it's a Greek word, but um, I have a definition of it there in the middle of page three of your handout. I mentioned it a, a bit last time. Paideia, Paideia, however you want to say it. Um, the New King James gives the word training. Um, I think uh, some older translations say nurture. Maybe the ESV, I think, says instruction, something like that. Uh, this is the first of the two words at the end. It says, Ephesians 6, 4, You fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training, paideia, and admonition of the Lord. Um, part of the argument uh, that we'll be looking at in just a moment with one of these longer quotes is that paideia uh, is a broader term than uh, just parenting, right? And that it was a cultural term that had certain understandings um, and that uh, the Lord in bringing Christ, uh, when he became incarnate and sending the apostles out, when they were sent out, would have had these things in mind. We, we believe God is sovereign, that he controls everything uh, from beginning to end of history. Why not even these details? It's kind of a question I have at the end, but it's something that maybe you should uh, begin to toss around in your brain. If you look on page 4, so the very last page, the very back, it's Roman numeral 5. Was it accidental or arbitrary for Christ to be born when he was? When he was? And therefore have the apostolic work take place among those whom it took place? Obviously, the answer to that is absolutely not. It was not accidental. It was not arbitrary. But if you think about it, the Lord, in choosing when he did... In having the Greek or the New Testament written in Greek, and having the Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, the Lord has literally codified particular words in a language that is not ours forever. That will be the basis of teaching the faith. Right? Think about that. Paideia. Right? It's a word that everybody who studies the Bible in Greek is going to have to deal with is going to have to think about, right? Everybody, whether they speak English, Japanese, um, Indonesian, um, Mexican, whatever the case may be, uh, or Spanish. I guess Mexican is not a language, is it? <clears throat> uh, yeah. Mucho gringo up here, sorry. So, uh, kind of just throwing that out there, but also let's look at 1 Corinthians 1. Um, these trying to draw this together for you to show you how this relates to apologetics um, because I kind of told you last time that I don't really like the idea of apologetics as a field of study, but it's kind of a necessity that we even think about it that way because that's uh, a bit uh, the water that we're swimming in, as it were. Uh, but in the New Testament, when you see things uh, like apologetical encounters or, or defending the faith or, 
or the ways that uh, the apostles would do things, a lot of times people take uh, what is preaching, what is evangelism, and simply says, well, that's apologetics. Maybe, right? I think there's overlap, of course, but it's not one-to-one. Like evangelism is not apologetics, and apologetics is not evangelism, but there is overlap for the two. So uh, here in 1 Corinthians 1, when Paul is writing to uh, the Corinthians, remember, these are real people. They lived in a, a real place, uh, and they interacted with uh, their own types of folks, had their own background. Uh, look at what he says, starting in verse 10. He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So there's division in the church. He's heard it from the probably the congregation that was meeting in Chloe's household. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now, Before I move on to verse 18, look at how he says, not with wisdom of words. That is one of those phrases that means 10,000 things to 10,000 different people. Some people think that, well, we shouldn't have any wisdom outside of the Scriptures. We shouldn't pursue any wisdom because that would be to call into question the sufficiency of the cross of Christ, right? Sounds like what Paul's saying, doesn't it? Well, no, of course not. Right? That would be absolutely absurd. You can't write a cookbook with the cross of Christ. Right? You just can't do it. There are things that you need wisdom for. The point is uh, what these words are meant to do. And that's where he gets at in the following verses. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, that means in Jesus Christ, the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For you see your calling, brethren, that not many were wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame, to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As, so that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So is Paul talking about apologetics here? Well, no, not really. He's talking about preaching. He's talking about the heart of the gospel, the apostolic ministry, that they did not go out with a worldly wise method. They went out with the preaching of the cross of Christ. It's sufficient to do what God has for it to do in preaching. We'll get back around to that in just a bit. So let me do these reminders really quick. Uh, first, on page one there, Roman number one, keep apologetics and the efforts of man in perspective. Right? Um, my point in saying this is, uh, and this is something we covered last time, is it's twofold, really. Uh, one, know that no wisdom of man or no power of your rhetoric is going to simply bump somebody into the kingdom. Right? God has to do that work upon the heart. However, God does use your rhetoric. God does use your words. Yes, God uses you, but God does not depend upon you. So if you're uh, sharing the gospel, which is a type of apologetics, it's not exactly the same, but if you're doing that, know that it does not depend upon you, but God does choose to use you at times. Second, apologetics is a tool like a light or a pointer for or to the truth. Um, this is one of the things I drew on the board last time. It's, it's actually really helpful. I promise uh, it, might, it might shock you. All right, so imagine the truth to be up here, or um, we could just say God. All right? And everything... Uh, is is meant to be used, we could say everything with quotes, but everything functions in its truest sense to bring us to God. So we have apologetics. We have reason. And we even have, you remember the big one I put on the board last time that kind of makes you shake when I write it? The Bible. You see, we like to go apologetics, reason, and then like a special bubble for the Bible right here. No, 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 no. I'm not saying that the Bible is equal to apologetics or reason. That's not my point. My point is that they are all tools, and we could list any number of things, to bring you to the truth, to bring you to God. Right? Apologetics works alongside um, Scripture. It can work by Scripture. Uh, the goal of apologetics is the same thing as the goal of Scripture, to bring you to true saving knowledge. 
Fourth, the work of apologetics is a good work, therefore to be pursued with all one's might, just as one would any other good work. Uh, five, being ready requires preparation. Remember the verse in First Peter that a lot of people go to to talk about apologetics. Being ready to give a defense of the faith. You can't defend your faith by implication if you're not ready. Right? Prepare yourself. Sanctify the Lord in your heart is what Peter says. Uh, six, the way to do that. How do you sanctify the Lord in your heart? Steady time in the word and prayer. Uh, point seven, the world has questions that only Christians can provide full answers for. It is not true to say that the world has questions that only Christians can answer. Everybody can give an answer, right? But only we can give the fullness, right? There's truth everywhere in some sense. We can all chip away at it. But Christianity alone has the fullness of the truth for these questions. Uh, Number eight, your answer does not have to be perfect, but it ought to give you a clean conscience, which is what Peter says as well in 1 Peter 3, so that whatever evil they may say is false. Um, 1 Peter 3, I think it's verse 15 and 16, if you want to write that down and go look back at it. Um, But your ability to give an answer is part of your conversation in Christ. I'm taking that word from... The King James Version in 1 Peter 3.16, I believe it is. Now, uh, Beatty's three parts to apologetics. Maybe you remember these, but remember uh, apologetics as a discipline is kind of a new thing. Right? I told you, like a, let's say 100 years ago, maybe uh, 120 years ago, is about the time you start seeing... Uh, in seminaries, um, maybe in universities, but especially in seminaries, you start seeing apologetics break off as a discipline on its own, right? where they would actually have courses on apologetics. You see, that's kind of new, isn't it? Kind of modern. All right? But uh, it's helpful to know what they would have meant by it and how we should think about it, too. Uh, apologetics, it's just the three points there. There's the philosophical proofs, there's the historicity and divine authority, and three, the practical results. And we hinted at a bit of that last time, but those are your um, review points. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's let's try to get back into the material from last time. Are there any questions about any of the review stuff or any of the scripture passages I've read so far? Yes. Can you say that? Um, is it is it fair to say that apologetics is really the, a, more of a tool um, under duress, where you were again going back to the what does it mean? Giving mm-hmm. a reason, a defense of the faith. It's it's when you're. You know, it's not strictly sharing the gospel. It's giving an understanding to somebody when you're, when they're somewhat hostile, in fact. Is that fair fair to say? Yeah, I mean, um, certain, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Certain interactions will be like that, for sure. Um, I also think that that we need to be very, uh, not eager, but uh, very comfortable with using the, um the uh what's the word the 
principles that Christ gave the apostles when he said to wipe the dust off your feet and don't throw your pearls before swine. Right? Um, it doesn't mean that we need to be quick to judge and make that decision, but some people will never make that decision. Right? Some people will absolutely destroy themselves and the other person over the same arguments over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now, sometimes God breaks through, but that's not because of our stubbornness. It's because of God's mercy. Right? So the scriptures give us all those things. The the pleading with people, right? We we plead with you on behalf of God, on behalf of uh, the Lord, be reconciled to God in Christ, is, is what Paul says in one place. Um, but sometimes you know, there, there are those uh, hostile interactions that you have with people. Um, but again, uh, kind of a twofold answer. Yes, there are interactions like that. But also, don't be afraid to disengage. Right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's, sometimes it's not worth it. Right? I mean, I mean, just think about when you're trying to discipline and teach a child. When everybody's shouting and upset, is anything really being accomplished? Not really, right? It's just normal human interaction. It doesn't mean that you can only share the gospel with people in calm circumstances or that, you know, street preaching is, is foolish. That's not what I'm saying, right? But it's just, you got to have some wisdom about you. Well, you so, can tell when somebody is, <clears throat> when somebody is trying to be genuine versus somebody who's um, just trying to stir things mm-hmm. up and, and just trying to be obstinate and and ridiculous yeah and it would depend on the context too like you know bringing up street preaching i have a friend who does a lot of street preaching um and he'll post videos of it like he's been at college campuses the past few weeks and they just scream and yell and they bring out their enormous bluetooth speakers and play music so nobody can hear him they record him he records them i mean it's, it's just a mess and uh you know he 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 keeps going um, you probably wouldn't want to take the same approach to, you know, the family dinner table. <laughs> uh, when I have had interactions with family in the past and had another pastor get involved to try to resolve the conflict, uh, this older pastor um, looked at me and said, can you just promise not to talk about it anymore? like no I can't I can promise not to bring it up at certain times yeah but you know making this vow that you're never going to talk about it because it makes people get upset it's not the way either right so anyway uh, very practical and good question so let's look at page two uh, I put a, a bracket um, about midway through the first paragraph where we resume from previous lesson and, and part of the reason we stop there is because there's, there's a lot of weighty stuff uh, that's going on in these quotes, and they are longer. Um, and this guy, I forgot to bring uh, the book. I did bring this other book. Let me give it to Andrew before I forget. This is my peace offering for getting sick last week. Ooh. <laughs> I'll show a book. Um, 
So th this guy that, that I'm quoting here, his, his name is on the bottom of page three in the footnote, Werner Jaeger, uh, early Christianity and Greek paideia. He's the one that makes this, this argument for uh, um, the paideia of the Lord uh, being a thing. Because if at Ephesians 6, uh, that was really the phrase there. Um, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, training, paideia, and dot, 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 of the Lord. So you can take out of the Lord and bring it together. So he's going to play off this phrase. But what, what he's showing is that um, the apostles were so well-versed in the culture in which God had placed them that they were able to use the verbiage and use the concepts to show the truth of God or to show that God had been at work already preparing for the entrance of the gospel message. Right? And those are important things to consider because I want to drive those home to you. If you want to actually do apologetics and not just do sword drill with people, you're going to have to know what people believe and think today. You just are. Right? Now, we need people who can do sword drill. We need people who can quote Scripture and say, well, you know, you're wrong because 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8 says this. Right? There, there's a place for that, and that's good. But that's not all there is to apologetics. Right? Because that's not how the apostles did apologetics. They did do that. They did preach and combat with people with the word, but that's not all they did. And he's, anyway, he's got this sustained argument of uh, um, how Greek culture, especially, uh, really played a role in the New Testament. I mean, think about it. Uh, the Lord Jesus was not Greek, the apostles were not Greek per se, but the New Testament's written in Greek. Why is that? Hmm. Right? So let's resume here. Uh, he's talking about, remember I, I, I pointed out that word to you last time, protreptic. Learned a new word. It means educational speech. And then he's talking about this uh, type of speech of the apostles. Uh, but he says, uh, after the bracket, they're resuming from previous lesson here, pointer. We find this eloquence first in the teaching of the Greek sophists, sophists, and of Socrates as he appears in the dialogues of Plato. He's saying the type of speech the apostles would have been engaging with, we find it here, right? So here we go. Even the word conversion, pretty important word for Christianity, right? Stems from Plato for adopting a philosophy meant a change of life in the first place. Even though the acceptance of it was motivated differently, the Christian kerygma, which is a word for like preacher, message, uh, spoke of the ignorance of men and promised to give them a better knowledge and, like all philosophies, it referred to a master and teacher who possessed and revealed the truth. This parallel situation of the Greek philosophers and the Christian missionaries led the latter, the Christian missionaries, to take advantage of it. So there, so let's pause for a second. He's arguing, and you see it as you read through the, the Greek, uh, uh, through the New Testament and see how the apostles are interacting. We'll come back to Acts 17 if we have time. We read it last time. I didn't want to 
read it again this week. But he's saying that swirling around in the first century where the apostles were, they were where they were sent out to, where Jesus says, hey, you go uh, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, that kind of thing. Where they were going, there were all kinds of messages about, hey, this is the way to live. And here's a master to follow. Right? Christianity has all that, doesn't it? Right? And that's the point he's making. He says, though, the God of the philosopher, too, was different from the gods of the traditional pagan Olympus. Right? So he's going to distinguish between philosophy and uh, the Greek pantheon of gods that they would have. So, so you have all that going on in, in the Greek culture because, you know, you've got uh, Greek mythology. <coughs> see if I can spell that right. Mythology. There we go. And you also have Greek philosophy. All right? And those two things are not the same. Right? This is Zeus uh, and all those different people, right, that you could research and look up. But there's also the philosophers where you have uh, Plato and Socrates and those people swirling in, uh, in the air at the time, Aristotle and those, those people. Uh, the god of the philosopher right, was... T- was different from the gods of the traditional pagan Olympus. And the philosophic systems of the Hellenistic age were for their followers a sort of spiritual shelter. The Christian missionaries followed in their footsteps, and if we may trust the reports found in the Acts of the Apostles, so this guy was kind of skeptical of Christianity, they at times even borrowed their arguments from the predecessors, especially when addressing an educated Greek audience. What he's referring to here is Acts 17, and here's where he's going to talk about it. This is where Paul is in Athens, and he, he encounters the, the Greek philosophers there, and he says, you know, here's all these idols you have around you. Here's one I see to an unknown God. This God you say is unknown. He's the one I proclaim to you. Uh, that kind of idea. So that's what Acts 17 is, just kind of summarized. But he says here, that was the decisive moment in the encounter of Greeks and Christians. Right? So he's viewing Acts 17 as a decisive moment in the encounter of Greeks and Christians, as if the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul confronted Greek uh, philosophy. The future of Christianity as a world religion depended on it. Make of that what you will. The author of Acts saw this clearly when he let the Apostle Paul visit Athens, the intellectual and cultural center of the classical Greek world and the symbol of its historical tradition, and preach on that venerable spot, the Areopagus, to an audience of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers about the unknown God. He quotes the verse of a Greek poet, we are his offspring. His arguments are largely Stoic and calculated to convince an educated philosophical mind. Whether this unforgettable scene is historical, we believe it was, or was meant to dramatize the historical situation of the beginning intellectual struggle between Christianity and the classical world, the setting of the stage reveals clearly how the author of Acts understood it. This discussion required a common basis. Now, don't read that as agreed-upon foundation necessarily. It's just a common basis that Paul would have known the way that they were thinking. Paul would have been well-versed 
in their beliefs at some level. He knew their philosophers, their poets, which were like philosophers back then. Uh, He knew them well enough to quote them, and he's going to utilize them as a common basis, else no discussion would be possible. As such a basis, Paul chose the Greek philosophical tradition, which was the most representative part of that which was alive in Greek culture at the time. Now, he's going to quote a uh, a deuterocanonical or an apocryphal, a non-scriptural book here, but listen how uh, this uh, non-scriptural book uh, relates the same ideas as what we see in Acts 17. So the later Christian writer, the author of the Acts of the Apostle Philip, has interpreted the intention of Acts in the same way, imitating our canonical Acts of the Apostles. He makes his protagonist come to Athens like Paul and speak to the same kind of audience on the same question. He makes the Apostle Philip say, I have come to Athens in order to reveal to you the paideia of Christ. That was indeed what the author of our Acts wanted to do. In calling Christianity the paideia of Christ, the imitator, so the Acts of the Apostle Philip, stresses the intention of the Apostle to make Christianity appear to be a continuation of the classical Greek paideia, which it would be logical for those who possess the older one to accept. At the same time, he implies that the classical paideia is being superseded by making Christ the center of a new culture. The ancient paideia thereby becomes its instrument. Now, this guy, uh, Jaeger, does not have quite an orthodox view of Scripture, but he takes the message of Scripture as true. What he does with the words is very contradictory, but we can use what he's saying here. So what is paideia? Paideia is the training of the physical and mental faculties in such a way as to procure a broad, enlightened, mature outlook harmoniously combined with maximum cultural development. And that's from some dictionary that I forgot to cite. But why is that important? Because this, this writer who wrote the Acts of the Apostle Philip Right? This non-scriptural writer, but a writer that was known to Christians uh, in the early period, knowing it wasn't scripture, but he's making this argument that the paideia of Christ is what was being declared at Acts 17 and on the Areopagus, this paideia of the Lord. And Jaeger is saying that he is, he, he goes on to say, because I couldn't quote the whole chapter, that this is a very prevalent idea in the early stages of Christianity, that the Lord used ancient Greek culture, that the Lord used the verbiage, the thinking, the, uh, the manners, and all those things of that world as the place in which he would bring his re- the revelation of his Son. Right? We still use words that are based in the Greek uh, culture of that day. We still use um, concepts and such like that. That second Roman numeral there in the middle of page 3, it says, Jaeger sees the Greek classical world as preparatory for the apostolic mission especially. 
We may deduce from this that men are prepared for the gospel message through the Lord's providence, and it is our job to discern how. I'm going to take a step back here for just a moment and say that if you want to be biblical in your apologetics, that's a big thing that's thrown around in reform circles. We're going to be biblical in everything that we do. Let's actually understand what they're doing in the Bible. Paul assumes the culture, right? Doesn't mean he agrees with it. He assumes it and uses it as a tool. And he had to know it, right, in order to do that. We have to do the same thing if we want to engage on a high level with apologetics, right? I'm not saying that, don't hear me say that everybody in this room has equal responsibility to go out and read guys like Jordan Peterson, Stephen Hawking, and, and all the, uh, the stuff that's even more popular now than, than the older atheists. Right? That, that, that's not my point. But if you want to be biblical, right? if you want to do what the apostles were doing, it's going to take that kind of work. It just is. Right? You have to have that breadth of, of knowledge. Everybody doesn't have that responsibility. Right? Everybody's not called to that. Sharing the gospel is a type of apologetics. It's a wonderful thing. First uh, Peter 3, uh, given a reason for the hope that was in you and all those things. It doesn't just refer to speaking, but it also refers to living as they behold your conversation in Christ. Right? The manner of living is an apologetic tool. In some cases, right? It really is, right? So there's speech. Uh, and as going back to uh, Beatty, right? The three parts to apologetics. There's philosophy, which is what Paul was doing, right? There's historicity and divine authority. And then there's also the practical results, like the applied uh, look at history kind of thing. Like just, just to think about those for just a moment, right? The Apostle Paul, right? the, the quintessential Calvinist. Um, when he had all of the scriptures at his disposal, he quotes a Stoic poet. Just think about it for just a second. Right? Was he wrong to do that? No. It just shows that it takes a very broad knowledge. Right? It takes a, a very open mind in really being able to engage people. Right? Um, you know, we could, we could talk about the, I'm not as well versed in the, the philosophies of today, like that would be a conversation that Sam and Andrew would probably better have than me. Um, but just being able to, to talk with people, like, you know, arguments about marriage and gender, right? You're not talking to people who believe in two genders anymore. You're talking to people who either don't believe in gender at all, who believe in an infinite number of genders? How do you establish a point of contact, or, or as the, the phrase he uses here, a, a common basis with them? Well, the answer is not to say, well, you can't. Oh, you can. You just have to figure out what it is. Right? That's when you'll be doing what the Apostle Paul was doing. Right? Um, any thoughts on that before I return back to the, the notes? Uh, kind of going all over the place here, but... One is the drop in the bucket argument, drop in the bucket kind of historical 
uh, when we say that Jesus came at the right time in the right place like think about a drop of water in a pond you could put a drop of water in a pond in such, in such a way that the ripples go over the entire pond or you could drop it in a puddle and it would never reach the pond but the fact that the Lord Jesus came in the point in history when he came and where he came and the, the vehicles, the trade routes, all of those things, like that the gospel spread, had the ability to spread like ripples through the pond. But also you think about, so that's one thing, but then you think about Greek language as a vehicle to carry ideas. So fast forward a few hundred years when you start getting into the evangelism and conversion of like Scotland and when they get to the Gaelic language, the gospel literally cannot be conveyed in Gaelic because it does not have the words, right? So the missionaries are struggling because they can't, the, the, the conceptual, the frameworks aren't there. But Greek as a vehicle, the language to convey truth, the gospel, has so much capability. It was, I mean, we still, I mean, you could argue even today our language, English isn't even as developed as Koine Greek is, was, right? We don't even have the vehicles to carry it. So that's the second thing, you know, God uses time, place, and language to convey ideas. And the third thing is, yeah, Paul quoted Stoic philosophers, but the words, the quotation of a Stoic philosopher is in the Holy Scriptures. That God spoke through them, and that's recorded for us. I mean, as Christians, we truly believe that the Bible is the very word of God, that the scriptures are God's speech. Yes, you know, through the apostles, through his pen. But that that is recorded. There are a lot of words that Paul said that aren't recorded. Yeah. But that is. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell us about the nature of revelation, God's speech, truth, all of that? Yeah, I mean, you could add Stoic philosopher to that, that bubble yeah. I had up there earlier with Pointing up to the truth. Um, so when we get to that common basis, I'm having a conversation with people. If you, you know, practically first listen, listen to who they're quoting, listen to who they're arguing with you or you know using to argue their position, listen, and then ask them to to convert you. Basically, <laughs> this is the tactic I take. Ask them to convert me. Give me the people that you listen to or what you're getting, where you're getting this from. And then don't respond right away. Go back and listen. And what you'll find is, you know, like especially if somebody's, there are people who are nearer to the truth than, than aren't. So if somebody's listening to somebody like Jordan Peterson, you're so close to a lot of uh, good things that it's not hard to find that common basis. But if you're listening to, if they're listening to somebody like, uh, Derrida or, you know, these really post-humanist philosophers, or even when you get into people who are into all of the gender stuff, right? There's still a grain of truth there. It's hard to find. It's hard to uncover. But you kind of got to also couple that with the desire of their heart. And I think that's what Paul was doing in Acts 10, is he's, he points to the, the unknown God the, the monument that they have to the unknown God, but that points also to a desire that they had in their pursuit. Mm-hmm. That they would even have a category of an unknown God means that they were still searching. Mm-hmm. And Paul goes there and says, hey, search is over. 
and found it, yeah. right? So yeah, I, I don't know, this is beautiful to think of apologetics as outside of the constraints of, um, I don't guess maybe in our camp, uh, we <laughs> constrained it so much, we tied yeah. it to one approach. So if yeah. you just listen to folks, man, we can find that basis if we're mm -hmm. really careful listeners. Yeah. But also, the basis he chose was not just some arbitrary basis or some superficial basis, but actually got to the heart of presuppositions, got to the very underlying, wasn't, you know, really deep underlying, it was very short and concise, but it was deep and underlying. What, what is it, where, where do we depart? Where does this branch, where does this tree start heading in two different directions, okay? Yeah. And, and so that's that's also an important part of apologetics, is, 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 is choosing a ground where you, you really seriously take, as, as Andrew was, you really t seriously take the other person's view and understand, understand what their view is mm -hmm. so that you can understand what it is, where did they go wrong? Yeah. What, what is the point, where, where does the spirit need to go? Mm -hmm. okay. No, and especially when you start talking about apologetics very narrowly like this, you begin to see how it's not for everybody mm -hmm. in the same way, right? It would do my wife very little good to read Derrida, right? Even if one of her long lost friends had started following uh, Derrida or, or you know, any other modern, uh, very non-Christian uh, philosopher, right? But, but somebody like me or, you know, some older saint, or, or let's just say my, my son, uh, is nine years old and is really passionate about sharing uh, Christ with uh, his uncle who is not a Christian or something like that on, on one side of the family. What's the best way for, for Jude to do that? Right? Would it be to read Jordan Peterson? No. Right? It, I mean, it would do him little to no good. And also, this is part of the reason, too, that, that we have to be careful about how we... Like, you know, the whole argument about what do we do with our children with sending them to college, right? Um, it, it, it just it won't really work to simply say, uh, well, we should only send our kids to, do, uh, to Christian schools, right? It, it, as an ideal, that, that's good. But it's just not possible in every situation, right? It's just not. Right? And, and sometimes there, we are going to be placed in circumstances where we're going to have to be challenged. Uh, but you don't want to do that with, with just anybody. Right? You don't want to send somebody with very little uh, Christian training and very uh, weak basis in their faith uh, to a very secular university. Right? You just don't. Now, I mean, if you've got a, a young man or a daughter who is like, very well endowed mentally, Right? And can handle these arguments and is very well read, maybe. Right? We know that the Lord keeps his own. So he's going to secure those children if they are really in Christ, we might say. But also, um, the Lord did this rollover and die philosophy. It, it doesn't work. It, it's just not going to work. We have to build things, first of all. That is, that is true, but some people are going to have to go to the front lines of battle, but it's not for everybody. That's a, another discussion, but um, let me get back to the 
notes here. We've got about 10-ish minutes. Not quite 10. All right, so he argues uh, that with a knowledge of ancient and classical writings, the apostles and Christian missionaries operated from a framework of common basis, meaning, at least partly, they were familiar with the material of the people and chose to interact with it, borrowing helpful illustrations and relying on truths that ultimately point back to the God of Christianity. This helps make sense of Acts 17 and should provide us with encouragement on how to engage our neighbors. I would also point out that the apostles went. Not Lydia. Not uh, Simon the magician. Not the Ethiopian eunuch. The apostles went. Right? Very gifted and called and equipped uh, men of the church. So, first, you will have to get to know your neighbors and the world they inhabit in order to rightly do apologetics with them in the fullest sense. Now, you share the gospel with them. Amen. Please do that. Pray for them. But apologetics as a, a full-scale full scale discipline, right? you're going to have to get to know them and the world that they inhabit. This is not to say that sharing the gospel is insufficient. But if you want an argument for a practice that is uh, reflected in Scripture, it will have to look something like Acts 17. Uh, another thing about the Greek language and Greek culture, Luke and Acts are addressed to Greek thinkers. Uh, the, probably the, one of the most basic, generic Greek names uh, is the man to whom Acts or Luke and Acts are written. Theophilus. <laughs> that could have been anybody, right? It could have been anyone who loves the Lord, right? Uh, because Theophilus, uh, or anyone who loves wisdom, right? Um, no, loves God. Lover of God is what Theophilus means. Right? It's a very common name. It just was. It would be like writing a letter today to um, John, right? How many Johns do you know? Probably a few, right? So Acts and Luke being addressed to someone named Theophilus, again, you have this playing on the people, this, this borrowing from the time frame in which they found themselves. And that's what, if we're going to do it biblically, right? if we're going to do it in the full sense, that's how to do it. We have to know the culture and we have to know the people. Uh, just some concluding thoughts here. Uh, one, you do not have to be the Apostle Paul to evangelize. Evangelism is a much simpler aim than the work of apologetics, and we are all called to evangelize in certain ways. Two, if you want to operate in a similar fashion as the Apostle Paul, which I don't think the Bible requires of all Christians, then you must engage them beyond quoting Scripture, because this is what Paul did. Three, most fun part of all, right? You have to get to know people. You just do. You're not walking up to a, a stone tablet that you just throw Scripture at and hope some of it sticks. That's never worked for me. Right? Even when people who are... Uh, you talk to street preachers about people who were converted through their ministry, they, they probably have heard them many times. Right? They go to a place where there's always people, and this same guy hears them for six months, and it's the only preaching he hears for six months. But um, Anyway, uh, the fourth thing, uh, Confession of Faith 1-7 is, is what's being referred to there. And why do I, I reference that? Because it speaks to the sufficiency of Scripture. Because a lot of people 
will respond to what I'm saying, to even what Andrew was saying, to what Mr. Ed was saying, right, to this idea that you have to be broader than Scripture if you're going to do a full work of apologetics. They'll say, well, you're just calling into question the sufficiency of Scripture. That could not be further from the truth. And what Westminster Confession 1.7 does is it gives you a historical understanding of what the sufficiency of Scripture is. Let me pull it up here because I want to I want to read it to you. Because some people take the sufficiency of Scripture to a uh, absurd conclusion, like like I made the point earlier about you can't write a cookbook using the words of Scripture. Well, Scripture is insufficient then, right? If the logic holds. But Confession of Faith, chapter one says, uh, paragraph 7, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. All right, so not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Right? Yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observe for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Sufficient. What does is, what is sufficient mean in the, the Reformation context? Because that's kind of where this, this comes out of, this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture. Scripture alone is sufficient to give you the knowledge of salvation. That's what the sufficiency of Scripture is. Right? It has nothing to do with things unrelated to salvation, Right? The, the term sufficiency of Scripture, not saying Scripture doesn't have anything to do with those things. But that idea is not saying that, I mean, because the way you, some people talk about it is, I could do a whole homeschool curriculum with the Bible. It's the way some people act about it. It's true, and it's absurd. Right? The Bible is not a history book, though it does contain history. The Bible is not a science textbook though it does contain things that might fall under the heading of science. The Bible is not a chemistry textbook, and all those things. It is sufficient for its purpose, and its purpose is to lead us to eternal life, sufficiency of teaching us by itself, yes, Scripture, uh, what it means to be saved. There's more that is indirectly addressed than that, but that is the purpose of the Bible, right? Because uh, the sufficiency of Scripture historically considered is about the uh, sufficiency of the contents of the Bible to lead you to salvation. And it is, but it's not sufficient to do things that it was not intended to do. Um, Sean, I don't know, but uh, the Bible probably wouldn't help us build that fence very much, would it? No. No. Doesn't make it insufficient, though. It's sufficient for what it's appointed for. Uh, last thing here, we already faced that. Uh, number five, number six, 
Did the people referred to in the scriptures refer to categories in general or specific issues in specific times? The truth can confront all things. That does not mean you will have proof texts for all things. Again, refer to Paul. Jude quotes apocryphal books. Second uh, Peter arguably does uh, as well. Um, but you have things that are not Scripture in the narrow sense that are quoted in Scripture and, as Andrew said, therefore become part of our Bibles. Um, and then the last one. Uh, you can insist on a weird an, an ah or non-historical view of sola scriptura, which is kind of the flip side of the sufficiency of Scripture, saying things like, I'm going to show that the Bible can do it all. But here's the thing. You won't be doing what the apostles did. And two, you will only be able to address what the Bible addresses, and it doesn't address everything. The moment you make a deduction or logical conclusion, you've actually moved beyond the words of Scripture and shown that reason is necessary and even foundational for these types of discussions. So um, that's kind of two introductory or two lessons on apologetics. Um, I'll think a little bit more about maybe one, maybe two more lessons. But that that's kind of like, I wanted us to do a, if you want to call it a prolegomena of apologetics, but just like the basic ideas about apologetics that need to be in place before you go about doing things, right? Um, because if you run up to somebody who knows philosophy better than you, and you try to engage them simply with the Bible, you're probably going to be frustrated and not equipped to do it. I would be too. When I run into philosophical discussions, I'm, my uh, list of capability is very short. Right? I get some basic principles, but philosophically speaking, that's not, or uh, not philosophically speaking, but when, when talking about philosophy, that's, that's not really my thing. Um, but yeah. Think about, think about uh, apologetics in the realm of philosophy because that's, that's what Paul did. He's addressing these philosophical ideas. You can think about it in the realm of Scripture and history, but also think about it in the realm of the practical results. Uh, those are the, the three given by uh, Beatty, which we quoted last time. Um, if you want to really swing for the fences and try to do what the apostles did, uh, knock yourselves out, but uh, I warn you, Frustrating. Reading those works, learning the world is frustrating. And it's not the call of God for everybody's life. It is for some people, but not for everybody. We are all called to evangelize, but not all called to be uh, apologists in that sense. All right. Any closing thoughts, questions? <clears throat> So did the Arians. Yeah. <laughs> so proof texting can be a very dangerous thing, yeah. but we don't also have a, a uh, equally 
strong understanding of how scripture interprets scripture or the good and necessary consequences of mm -hmm. how scripture presents framework because that's one thing that when we say the Bible is sufficient, yes, and also the, the Bible is deeper or goes further than any philosophical system of man. You know, so it might not address them by name, but in principle it does. Mm -hmm. We understand how to read our Bibles and understand that God's thoughts, you know, God knew the God gave us the Bible and it's sufficient for today, right? He knew that we would have it today. He knew the philosophies, the systems of thought we'd be coming up against. The Bible even can is deeper than them. Mm -hmm. But if we have a very shallow view of the Bible, like a proof text kind of view of the Bible, which is really shallow, then the Bible isn't going to be deep enough. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be able to contain the other thoughts that we come up against because we don't have a big enough view of the Bible or we don't have a big enough view of God. You know, so knowing how to read yeah. is very important. Yeah, and something that we have to recover. I mean, I, I try to uh, comfort you on one side that we're not all called to be apologists per se. Um, we're also not all called to be evangelists per se, but we all are called to be those who bear witness to Christ, right? So, like, I'm not trying to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card where you, you shouldn't feel guilty about not sharing the gospel with people or, or whatever. That, that's not the point, right? The point is that God has equipped you in certain ways. He has called you to the people that are immediately around you and placed among you, and you need to figure out ways to be able to convey Christ to them, right? Maybe you can't read or comprehend complicated thoughts worth a lick. That's fine. But maybe you can cook a real good meal. Right? Maybe you can invite them over. Maybe you can babysit their kids. Maybe you can, uh, you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Right? That is, to use in a broad sense, that is apologetics. It is. That is bearing witness and defending the faith that God has given us. Anyway, let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this time. Uh, prepare us for worship now. Uh, give us clarity beyond what my meager efforts are able to do and uh, help us to see how we can uh, defend the faith, reach more people with the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.